0: Well, good morning, NSA family. If, uh, thanks, Lynn. Uh, if you're back with us for the first time since we had our outdoor services, make sure you look up, take stock of the room. It's very nice. A lot of work has been done. If you're in the back, it's still a little shadowy because it's not done yet, uh, but that's okay. There are some supply issues and lights will arrive and everything will be nice and polished and clean in the near future. Um, I'm pleased to say that as of this past week, my family, Lisa, myself, and all four of our kids, amazingly, are now residents of Lynn Valley. We've made it. Um, uh, we had a lot of help to make this happen. We, had, uh, we relied on a lot of people. I know there are other people who wanted to help us, and there was just too many speci- uh, really specific tasks that required special kinds of help for us to be able to bring everybody in. But we'll find other ways uh, to feed people with pizza and have you buy with some other kind of party and fun. So that's good. Maybe not all at once, or the neighborhood uh, might not like us very much. So today is Pentecost Sunday. Uh, pente is the word for five, it's 50 days from Easter, the 50th day from Passover. And in the Jewish tradition, this is a festival, a harvest festival, to celebrate the first harvest of wheat. So the wheat comes in and you have a party because there's a a harvest happening. And on this day, 50 days after the resurrection, something happened with the Holy Spirit in the church. Something happened. And because of this, because of this Pentecost event, this week and the next two weeks, we have a mini-sermon series on the Holy Spirit. So this week, we're going to talk about what happened at Pentecost. Next week, Uh, We'll talk about how to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the week after that, we'll look at the fruit and the gifts of the Spirit. This is going to be a kind of high-level flyby, a kind of sampler menu of the Holy Spirit, maybe if you like some theological tapas, all right, so you're just getting bites as we go by. We're going to return to these ideas Uh, next year in more depth. We're going to come back and spend much more time in the Holy Spirit teaching, but for now, because of Pentecost, we want to spend this kind of overview. Our text this week is Acts chapter 2, and in a moment, I'm going to read the entire chapter. It's quite a long passage. That's fine, Uh, but it's all worth hearing in the church. Uh, Pastor Paul last week set us up really well for this. He talked about um, after the resurrection and what it meant for mission, And how Jesus said, um, uh, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you in Jerusalem, there's going to be a new mission for God's people. He's going to send us out in power to advance the gospel. And today, we read about the arrival of that power. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text, the long text, and then after that, I'm going to just give a brief overview of what I think's happening in the text, and then I'm going to give you four points about the text. Nothing in too much depth, uh, but that'll be the order of operations today. So allow me to read uh, read for you from Acts chapter 2. I'll read the whole chapter now. Uh, St. Luke the Evangelist writes, When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now, there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when the sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered, because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each hear them in our own language to which we were born?" Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, they are full of sweet wine, in other words, they're drunk. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour, about nine in the morning. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brethren, Peter continues, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he has both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, David speaking, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they, the crowd, heard this, They were pierced to the heart, and said to Peter, the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, Peter solemnly testified, and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then... Those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, and they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, it's a long reading, but it's a magnificent story. It's a powerful event. It's pretty important for who we are and what we get to do. And so let's talk a minute about some of the things that are going on In this passage. So the first thing is that in the beginning of Acts, Jesus ascends to heaven. He goes up into the cloud, the cloud obscures him, he vanishes. He says, When I go, I'll send the Spirit to fill you. And in the absence, Jesus' absence, the disciples are gathering regularly for fellowship. Most likely, they're meeting every day. They're not meeting once a week. They're getting together every single day. Just like in the early church, communion, we have communion once a, once a month, right? In the early church, they had communion together because it was a full meal. They had it every time they got together. And it was actually a place for the poor to get enough food to eat. It provided meals for the hungry. It was probably what they did. Now, they're together on Pentecost. This is the Pentecost. It's this 50th day in the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Feast of Weeks. And we get a passage uh, that tells us, there's a few passages, but Deuteronomy chapter 16 gives us some information about this feast. So here's Moses speaking. He says, you shall count seven weeks for yourself. You shall begin to count seven weeks from the time you begin to put the sickle to the standing grain. Then you shall celebrate the feast of weeks to the Lord your God with the tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. Pause. So seven weeks right? Hebrews love the number seven, right? Seven's a good number. Seven sevens, this is really good. And the day after the seven sevens is the 50th day, okay? So this is an extra special day because you're just celebrating the end of a cycle of sevens. It's a feast. It's rejoicing. Uh, Verse 11, uh, Moses commands, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, and you you and your son, and your daughter, and your male and female servants, and the Levite who is in your town, and the stranger, and the orphan, and the widow who are in your midst, in the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish his name. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt, and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Key factor about the Feast of Weeks is rejoicing, celebration. And what do we see in the disciples gathered together? Rejoicing, celebration. They're doing what God commands them to do. Also, there appears to be a pretty strong echo between the Spirit being poured out on sons and daughters and everyone, and here, everyone rejoices. Your son, your daughter, your servant, everybody gets to receive the benefit of this first harvest. Nobody's hungry. That's part of a harvest festival. Nobody goes hungry, right? Everybody's full to the brim, and that's great. Uh, So while they're meeting, the disciples, they're meeting, rejoicing, doing what they're supposed to do, tongues of fire descend. This is weird. This is really weird. What do they mean by tongues of fire? You mean like little candle flames? Sometimes it looks like a tongue, right? The little candle flames, like everybody got turned into a candle. Or is it weirder? Is it like tongues like this like tongues are coming out. and they're, that's even weirder, isn't it? Uh, so we don't know that something has happened. There's a wind and there's tongues of fire. And it says, verse four, "And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, all filled. I think this marks a significant change in how God operates relative to the world. In the Old Testament, you find the Holy Spirit hanging out with kind of like one person at a time. There's a story where the Spirit rests on Elijah, and then before Elijah dies, it passes directly from Elijah to Elisha, one person with the Spirit. And then, this is really weird, you can look it up, Elisha dies, but the Spirit doesn't pass on, and the Spirit hangs out on Elisha's bones for a while. That's in the Bible, it's weird, okay? Sometimes you get the spirit hanging out with like a group of traveling prophets, like he's hanging out with a small group of prophets, and that's where he is, and he's doing something there. Or you see the spirit rest on a king, or he's just in the temple only, or as is the case with the New Testament, he rests on Jesus like a dove. Spirit, one place at a time, one person at a time. But for the spirit to rest on all people reflects a kind of change in how God relates to the world. There's a franchise of the Spirit. He's blown out the walls of how things work, how prophecy and dreams and visions should work. And so there's been a huge change. What's going on? Filled, these disciples now speak in other tongues, which, as the story goes on, clearly means other known languages. That's why they list all these citizenships, because they're all hearing it spoken in their own language. So they start preaching in languages they don't know, like Swahili and Mandarin and Shona, and they're using anything they've got to begin to talk about the gospel. And they can do this. And what people do is they hear it, and they're like, man, this guy doesn't know Mandarin, but he's preaching in Mandarin. That's pretty impressive. He's talking about this Jesus guy. So they're hearing it in a fresh way. The crowd misinterprets what's going on. They don't know what's happening. Of course, how could they? It's totally new. And so Peter stands up to preach and explain. And in the process, there's a massive repentance and explosive church growth because of the massive repentance. And then last thing we get, this lovely tag at the end, is the radical transformation of the community. And suddenly this is unheard of in the Roman world, that you would be generous to people who aren't your family, that you would give of your possessions to people who you aren't related to. And so there's this economic transformation, an economic miracle in the truest form of the words. So that's my brief overview of the passage. There's so much to say about it. It's a lovely passage, but I'm going to step now into my main points. I've got four of them for you now. So point number one is this. On Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit descends. On Pentecost Sunday, the Holy Spirit descends. Now, there's some funny things. We see the Spirit, is, uh, you see the mighty wind blowing through, right? And there's tongues of fire. In other places, there's a dove. It's kind of weird, right? You begin to wonder what kind of thing this Holy Spirit is. What is Spirit if it appears in all these different forms? Well, there's a more important question, which is who is the Spirit? Because it's not an it. It's a person. And more than a person, it's a he. And more than just a he, it's a member of the Holy Trinity. It's the power and presence of God living and dwelling with us. You see, the spirit's not a force, it's not the force, it's not an impersonal presence kind of just working through the world and, you know, all those people who are spiritual but not religious, they're connected to spirit, man, right? It's not that. And that's partly what I mean when it says the spirit descends. It's not that we cultivate a sense of religious consciousness and our sense of evolved well-being and our goodness develops until we achieve spirit, look how good we are. That's not it. The Spirit descends down. He comes from outside our experience. It's God himself entering into our lives. The Holy Spirit is the power and the presence of God living with us. I want to pick a brief aside to say the Holy Spirit is not an it. Nor is the Holy Spirit a she. It's a he. And I'm going to borrow from some cultural language, but if you choose to use other pronouns, you're not respecting God's preferred pronouns. Okay? <laughs> Honor who he is. There's a lot of people today who want to talk about things like the sacred feminine. They want to throw some other stuff in God. And it's usually just pagan spirituality finding traction in our theology. Most of the time, that's all it is. So, you want to have a debate about it? We could talk about it later. You might not enjoy it. (laughs) Holy Spirit is God's presence. He descends down from God to us. He indwells us, fills us, seals us marks us as a deposit in earnest of God's resurrection power and empowers us for Christian living and kingdom mission. Now, these are all listed, but I'm going to go back through them for you for a moment now. The Spirit descends. I just said this. It's not an earthly origin. It's not just spirituality. It's not spiritual but religious stuff. It's God entering into our experience powerfully, powerfully manifesting himself here. He indwells. He takes up residence inside us. Not just a tiny space, but he plants a home inside the Christian heart. And then, having indwelled, he fills the space. I think some of us kind of wish the Holy Spirit would stay in his corner, right? Like maybe somewhere back by the liver. Not bothering me too much, just kind of back there. But no, he's in every room. He fills it with his smells. He invades it. You have a sense of his presence pervading the entire house of your soul. The Spirit fills you. In addition to filling, he seals. We talked about this a few weeks back. He's the one who locks you in as God's people. We talked about abiding in the love of God. The Spirit is the one who seals you in abiding power, okay? He marks as a deposit and an earnest. The Spirit is the one who rose Jesus from the dead, and having the Spirit means you will be raised from the dead as well. It's your resurrection promise of things to come. He empowers you for Christian living. A couple weeks ago, I talked about how prayer is available here for every one of us. We're priests, and we're sent out, and our holy living is a symbol to the world that we're available for mission. But if you try to do that on your own, you don't have any power to do it. It's the Holy Spirit who empowers you to have this kind of holy living. And, of course, he empowers us also for kingdom service. And these are the gifts and the, the spiritual gifts and the fruits by which God fills us for what he wants to do in the world. We're going to talk about this In a couple weeks' time. So in brief, the Holy Spirit is the fuel that runs the Christian machine. What you're made to run on. Now, I asked permission from Liesl to tell this story, but I'll tell this briefly. When she was a young woman of about 17 years old, she went a long road trip. She was going to drive from Dallas to out in New Mexico about 13 hours in the car on her own. Okay? Pretty good. And like a good dad, her dad, the night before, took her out in the car, made sure the car was all in good working order, right? And they went and gassed up the car together. And she pulled up to the station and got to the middle tank of a three-tank bay. And her dad said, you know what? You should pull, always pull to the end as a courtesy to the people behind you. So she dutifully pulled to the end. Next day, she began her trip. Came time to fill up her tank. She remembered her dad's instructions, pulled into the gas station, pulled up the last tank, began to put the nozzle in, realized it was kind of funny, didn't fit the same way, but still pulled the trigger on the fuel nozzle. And about a few minutes in, had a horrible, horrifying realization that she'd just put diesel in her car. So she called her home. Her dad answered. He, she said, he said, hi, how you doing? She said, hi, dad. I might have put the wrong kind of fuel in the car. And he, thinking, oh, well, you know, we put premium gas in our cars. Maybe she put the cheaper stuff. It's going to be fine, honey. Don't worry about it. And she said, OK, Dad, and hung up. <laughs> she called back, and her mom answered. She said, Mom, <clears throat> I put diesel in the car. <laughs> and her mom didn't miss a beat, turned to her dad, and said, Fred, she put diesel in the car. <laughs> that was now, they were able to solve this. There was a kind of additive they could add to the engine, and they filled it up the rest of it with unleaded gas. But for the next hour, the car chugged and started and did funny things. Now, if you put diesel in your unleaded engine, it'll run, but poorly. If you had put unleaded gas in your diesel engine, your day would end, okay? This is not this is not a good idea. The point is this, you in the work in the economy of God's kingdom, you are high performance vehicles made to operate on the fuel that is God's spirit. And some of you are filling your cars with diesel. And you're chugging along and you're hurting your engine and you don't have the strength and power you're supposed to have because you're running on the wrong fuel. So get topped up with the Spirit. It's the right kind of... Now, some of you have electric cars, and you're feeling very proud of yourselves right now. (laughs) I I have nothing to say to you. (laughs) Okay, that was the first point. The second point this morning is this. On Pentecost Sunday, the church is born. On Pentecost Sunday, the church is born. Before Pentecost, we had a group of disciples just gathered disciples, faithful people formed by Jesus. But after Pentecost, after the Spirit descends and indwells and fills and seals and empowers, we have a church. Something has changed. And what, one of the things I love about this text is that it reveals a series of distinctive features about the church. And I'm just going to list five distinctive features about the church that come from this passage right now. So the first is this. The church is composed of many jesuses many. Jesus'. Is. That's what it means to be a Christianoi. It means to be a mini-Christ. Okay? Now the Spirit, as you remember in the Gospels, descends on Jesus, and then it anoints Him. It descends and dwells and fills and anoints Him for power and ministry. And now that the Spirit descends on all of us, and the implication is you also have now been anointed for ministry, to continue the ministry of Jesus in the world. The church is composed of a whole range of mini-Jesuses. That's what the blowout of the Spirit does. Second thing, the church is equipped for mission. This business of being enabled to speak in other languages is the business of extending the kingdom of God to people who haven't heard the word yet, equipped and supplied with the information and the power and the resources we need to carry the gospel to other people. Now, one form of that is going to be the form of speaking other languages. There are a host of other forms by which the Spirit equips us for these ministries. It's not just tongue speaking. There's lots of other things. Third, the church preaches so that people will repent. This is the message from Peter, right? Peter preaches the sermon, and there's this massive bit of repentance that comes out of the room, out of, out of the audience. Remember, in John 14, Jesus said, when the Spirit comes, he will convict the world regarding sin and righteousness. And the Spirit comes, and what happens? Conviction of sin. It's exactly what Jesus promised would happen. Fourth, the church embodies a transformed economics. There's nothing more radically a sign of the gospel's presence in people than the fact that suddenly they don't care about their money anymore. It's a pretty radical change. And suddenly, valuing your neighbor more than your portfolio is a pretty profound event happening. The church embodies this generous and transformed economics. And lastly, the church models unity with diversity. This is too big a point to give it such a small kind of throwaway. I'm sorry about that, but I want to talk about it for a moment. If you look carefully, the Acts 2 story, where there are tongues and there's new languages, looks a lot like the Babel story from the book of Genesis. Genesis 11, they built this tower. They were going to unify the entire world with a sense of power and unity. And they were going to reach up and compete with God. And it says in the text that God was already on the ground at the time. So it was kind of like they were trying to get to God, but he was already down here. And he comes up, and what does he do? He confuses and divides the tongues. Part of the message of that passage is that any human efforts to make unity always go wrong. They always lead to confusion. They always lead to destruction because they always rely on things like power, right? And on forced conformity and on cutting off the outliers and on removing the people who don't quite fit in. But look at the unity we see in the church. Because God doesn't make them all speak one language. God keeps the diversity of languages, but makes it so they can understand each other. The unity of the church is the only hope for actual unity in the world. And God doesn't do it by blowing away your differences. He does it by covering them with the Spirit. There's hope for unity. Now, this means that when the church screws up unity by being divisive, we sin against our own selves. Sin against our mission. It's horrible. I hate when that happens because we're the ones who are supposed to carry a torch of unity for the world. We can go back through these things. When the church doesn't embody its transformed economics, when we're greedy, we violate who we are as a people of God. When we don't go out on mission, when we don't look like Jesus, and when we preach, what do we preach, condemnation instead of repentance? That's not what Jesus does. Okay, we could talk about that for a long time. Point number three. Here we go. On Pentecost, the last days are confirmed. The last days are confirmed. Now, we talked about this a few months ago in our series on 1 John, how the last days are here. They began on an April Sunday morning in AD 33 when Jesus came back to life. That began the last days. But here, the pouring out of the Spirit confirms the last days. It confirms it. And this is what Peter says to the crowd in Acts 2.17 where he quotes Joel chapter 2. And it says, it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. Your sons, daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit and they shall prophesy. So the Spirit confirms that we're in the end times. Now, it's important to note that it's very possible for the early church that they believed the end times meant the impending end of the world. They thought, this is it, the world's ending any minute. The first followers, but it is quite clear from what we see in the text and what we see the Spirit doing, even right in our passage, is that the end times inaugurate an era of mission. The end times are the Spirit's era, the era of the people filled by the Spirit continuing the mission of God in the world. We live in the age of the Spirit's power and work. We are partners with Him in His special work to draw the whole world back to God. And sometimes I think Christians get a little excited about the end of the world, but in their excitement about the end of the world, they miss the fact that we're we're still going so that more people can get saved. The world hasn't ended yet because Jesus isn't done with people yet. And every once in a while, I'll see some tragedy happen in the world, and some of my peers and friends will post things like, Come, Lord Jesus, which, of course, is a prayer for the end of the world. And I kind of think, I'm not sure that I'm done with the mission yet. Yeah, it's bad and we should grieve and it's horrible and we want the power of Jesus to come, but I don't know that I want the world to end yet because there's still stuff to do in the power of the Spirit. And in fact, we will be doing the right stuff if, we're st- if, the, Lord, if the world ends in five minutes. If we're in step with the Spirit, that's what we're supposed to be doing. We're not supposed to be looking at the sky. We're supposed to be filled with the Spirit looking to love our neighbors, okay? Your eyes are always this way. Okay, fourth point. It says number three on the screen, but it really is number four. On Pentecost, the church receives power. The church receives power. And Pentecost power reveals the difference between earthly power and God's power. You think about it, there's a lot of people who spend a whole lot of money to invest in things like church growth, where they try to model how we're going to make our churches big. And they strategize, and they hire consultants, and they read books. But from my reading of the text, the single greatest power for growing God's church is the presence of his holy spirit. If the spirit's present, the church grows. Look here, at Acts 2:41. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and that day they were added about 3000 souls. I mean, they started off in somebody's house, and by the end of it they couldn't fit in any house. And the spirit did more than just blow out the he blew out the walls of the building they were in. Where are they going to go? It's a massive amount of growth. But let's think about it. Was it Peter's great rhetorical skill that caused the church to grow that day? Was it maybe the fact that they had cookies? Okay. Were they appropriately seeker-sensitive? Right? Did they do some market research? Like, okay, the Galileans feel this way about this issue, so let's try to stay away from this part of sin and let's talk about this and let's kind of tailor the message to kind of really target this niche group? None of that stuff. It was the presence and power of the Holy Spirit that convicted people of sin in response to the preaching of the word, and they repented and were brought into the fold. The Spirit's the effective power of the Christian life, not our cleverness, not our plans and strategies. We do really struggle with power today, because when we think of power, we think of things like force, right? When we think of power, we think of things like winning, like if we have power, we'll win. When we think of power, we think of bullying, like we can, we can drive and you know, make people feel bad for things. We can shame them into following along with us. When we think of power, we think of things like having power over, or having more power, or having better power, or stronger. But when true power comes, it almost always looks like transformation. So here are some features of power. True power manifests in things like repentance. When someone whose heart is really hard is transformed by Jesus and their life is completely changed, that's power. I didn't force you. Jesus did that. And we stand in awe of that power. True power manifests in healing. When people who are wounded are made well, like people who have deep Heart wounds inside themselves find wholeness. Or people who have broken bones are made whole. This stuff is power. And you know what? Nobody can fake that stuff. It's real. True power manifests in fellowship. When disparate groups of people get together, they want to be together. They look forward to being together. And you know what? They won't let anything come between them and their fellowship with one another. I'll do whatever it takes to make it right because our community matters more than me winning. That's power when a community does that stuff. And of course, true power manifests itself in economic transformation. That's power at play. When people realize that their stuff just doesn't matter so much anymore. Something has happened. If you want to see power, I encourage you to look at what God can and does do with a ramshackle group of surrendered followers. He transforms them. He takes them. He converts them. And if we will surrender, what will God do with us? I'm going to invite our worship uh, team to come back up. But I'll say these things for us. It's Pentecost Sunday, church, so happy birthday. I am <laughs> I'm convinced more than I've ever been convinced that whatever power we have for ministry on the North Shore, comes from the Holy Spirit of God. And if any of this power sounds good to you, I'd like to invite you to pray with me this morning for a fresh filling of that descending, empowering, indwelling, sealing, promising Holy Spirit. Will you bow your heads and pray with me? Almighty God, you have made a way to yourself through the work of your Son, Christ and you have made yourself available to us through your Spirit. Give us the Holy Spirit again today, like you did on Pentecost so many years ago. Fill us, transform us, and renew us for the mission you have staked out for North Shore Alliance. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.